Brilliant. Thanks very much indeed. It's a great joy to be with you. As I walk through the door, the Lord spoke to me a clear word. Thou shalt not covet thy uh, neighbour's church building. It's lovely here, isn't it? You should all have a... There's a handout that was scattered around the place. Has everyone got one of those? If you haven't, do pass the spares around uh, as well so that everyone's got one. There's a spare one. I, you can have my one as well. Cause everyone got one? Terrific. It's really there for you. Would you like one? Have another one. I did 40, so there should be enough for one for everyone. Lovely. That's just an outline of where we're going, and it means that uh, if you fall asleep uh, during the session and then wake up, it'll mean you, know, you can find out where you are, uh, or give you a rough idea of how long there is to go um, before we get to coffee. Now, national productivity has declined. The economy is stagnant. Spending power is at an all-time low, and people are going on strike, downing tools, not turning up for work. Sounds like the present day, doesn't it? In fact, that was the situation into which the prophet Haggai speaks. It is the 29th of August, 520 BC. Verse 1 of the book dates the prophet exactly. We are in the second year of King Darius. Now, the book that we're going to look at today and conclude tomorrow morning opens with something of a surprise. You see, Haggai's the name of the book, but we know nothing about him at all. We don't know anything about his family. We don't know what he did for a living. We don't know where he went to school. We could draw nothing of his CV up at all. He arrives on the stage of Israel's history in August 520 BC. He'll leave the stage tomorrow morning at the end of chapter 2 on the 18th of December of the same year. His prophetic ministry, as far as we know, appears to last a mere 17 weeks in which he speaks a number of times. We know little about the uh, prophet, but we know a huge amount about the context. You see, that verse, verse 1, in the second year of King Darius, that date tells us a great deal. Haggai is one of three prophets, the last three in our Old Testament, that speak after what we call the return from exile. Now, I don't know how much of the Bible overview you can remember. It was a year ago, a year from last uh, autumn. Do you remember how Israel went into the promised land and how Israel had asked for a king to rule over her? The first of which was Saul, the second of which was David, the third of which was Solomon. Solomon broke every rule there was for a king and God said as a result the kingdom would split into two. And it did. It split into Judah in the south and Israel, maintain the name Israel in the north. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Israel had 14 kings, all of them scumbags. Every single one of them was a rebel against God. And eventually God's patience ran out, and what he'd warned happened, and the northern kingdom of Israel was attacked by the Assyrians, the superpower of the day, overrun and ethnically cleansed, and that was Israel, the nation gone, never to come back. Higher. The southern kingdom, called Judah, lasted about 140 years longer. Until God's patience with Judah ran out too. And she was overrun now, not by the Assyrians, but by the Babylonians, by King Nebuchadnezzar. 
And Nebuchadnezzar carted all the leaders of Judah off into exile to Babylonia. And you'll remember some of the heroes that went to Babylon. People like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Tabedwigo, no, Abednego. And they went into exile. But Jeremiah the prophet said that exile would only last 70 years. And exactly after 70 years, King Cyrus allowed anyone who wanted to, to return to Jerusalem. And about 42,000 returned to Jerusalem. But when they returned, they found that the city was in ruins, and the temple, which signified the the presence of God amongst them, the temple had been obliterated by Nebuchadnezzar. So when they returned, it wasn't restoration, it wasn't renovation, it was complete rebuild. And the first grand design that had to be rebuilt was the temple. And the people had started. But, but it all ground to a halt. You can, if you want a cross-reference, you can read about it in the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 4 and verse 20 tells about how the people who lived around Jerusalem, who didn't want Jerusalem to be restored, who didn't want the city to become strong again, they employed people to come and discourage the people in Israel, in Judah, in Jerusalem. I suppose we call them spin doctors today. Spin doctors sent to discourage the people from the rebuild and the work had ground to a halt. And that's where we are at Haggai chapter 1 verse 1. When the word of the Lord comes through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. I've been practicing those names all week. And Haggai speaks. And he, the first thing he does is he shows that the people haven't got God-centred priorities. That's what verses 2 to 11 is all about. God-centred priorities. The book of Ezra leads us to think that the reason the work stopped was that the people were discouraged by these spin doctors. But the book of Haggai gives a completely different take on it, a completely different slant on it. And in fact, what the first thing Haggai does is expose the hypocrisy of the people in verses 2 to 4. This is what the Lord Almighty says. This is what the people are saying. The time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. It's not the right time. Maybe they're putting a spiritual gloss. You can always find a spiritual reason for the thing that you don't actually want to do. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. But with words dripping with irony in verse 3, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house, God's house, remains a ruin? In other words, it's not time to build God's house, but it is time to build our house. And what Haggai is doing is exposing that hypocrisy. The hypocrisy that says it's not time to build the house for God, but it is time to build our panelled houses. Now, panel houses in the 6th century BC, you can follow this up in the book of Jeremiah, panel houses in the 6th century BC were the height of luxury. This is comfort. 
This is a detached house. This is a house with a jacuzzi bath. This is a house with a flat screen and TV in most of the rooms. This is a house with decking in the garden. This is a lovely house. And it's time for them to sort out their own house while it isn't time for them to sort out God's house. Don't mishear me. Haggai is not actually saying there's anything wrong with a panelled house. There's nothing wrong with decking in your garden. There's nothing wrong with a flat screen TV. There's nothing even wrong with a jacuzzi bath. No, there's nothing wrong. It's the a case of priorities. You see, when they returned from exile, God said, build the house. Build my house. Build a second temple in Jerusalem. That was God's priority, but their priority was, we'll build our own houses first. We'll make sure we're comfortable first. I wonder whether you can smell the snake here. Because here is something that's good in and of itself, a panelled house, nothing wrong with a panelled house, here is something that's okay in and of itself, but becoming the priority instead of what God had called on them to do. It's always the smell of the snake when something that's okay in and of itself becomes the priority above what God has asked. God had called on them to build his temple. They had decided to build their houses. And they'd even spiritualized it. The time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Yeah. Oh, those spin doctors. Well, maybe that's a sign that we shouldn't be doing it now. But God had said, first priority, build the house. My house. And yet they had decided they would build their own houses. It's interesting. When you read the New Testament, when you come to read the Gospels, it's interesting to discover that things good in and of themselves, okay in and of themselves, so often become a priority above what God wants. So I've uh, recently read through all of Luke's Gospel again. Very interesting exercise to ask, what stops people following Jesus? Which is obviously the first priority, isn't it? Following Jesus. What stops people following Jesus in Luke's Gospel? What becomes the priority above Jesus? There are two things consistently through Luke's Gospel. The first is family. It's very striking. You know, the parable of the great banquet. Oh, I must get, first go, I've, I've just got married. Our family, which is so obviously a good thing, isn't it? It's a creation gift of God. But family can usurp the priority that God has given us. The second in Luke's gospel is possessions or money. There's nothing wrong with possessions. There's nothing wrong with money. But it can become the thing that takes the top priority. And in a few moments, I'm going to suggest we... As we discuss with one another, I'm suggesting you we ask each other, what could be good in and of itself, but take a priority above the things God has called us to do? What could usurp that situation? The hypocrisy is exposed. Our house before God's house. But then that leads, secondly, to the blessings withdrawn. There's a little sandwich between verses 5 and 7. Notice verse 5, give careful thought to your ways. And verse 7, give careful thought to your ways. And sandwiched in the middle is the economic situation that we opened with. 
So give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. The last of which is almost certainly a metaphor, not to be, not literal. You earn wages, you put it in the purse, but your money doesn't go as far as you wish. Here are five economic indicators that ought to have woken the people up. Because these people would know the law of Moses. These people would know the deal God had made with Moses. The deal at Mount Sinai in Leviticus 26, repeated to the second generation in Deuteronomy 28. The deal that said, if you obey me, you will be blessed. But if you disobey me, then harsh things will happen. And all five of these economic indicators, here in Haggai chapter 1, verse 6, you'll find in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, this was what God had warned them. If you disobey me, these kind of things would happen. So God has withdrawn his blessing from the people, giving them these harsh economic situations. Planted much, but harvested little. Eat, never have enough. Drink, never have your fill. Put on clothes, not warm. Earn wages, the money doesn't go as far as you'd want. These five economic indicators were meant to slap them around the face, wake them up. They're meant to be thinking at this point, in what way have we disobeyed God? It should have been enough in and of itself. But look how kind God is. He sent Haggai to make it explicit. To make it explicit, so notice in another little sandwich, which is verses 5 to 7, the economic situation, and then verse 9 to 11, the economic situation. But now, in the second bottom layer of the sandwich, the economic situation is explained. So notice with me verse 9. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. And now the Lord God asks the question, why? Why is this? And here's the answer. Because of my house, which remains a ruin. While each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I call for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle and on the labor of your hands. Why have they got this? Why have the blessings been withdrawn? God's now spelt it out in simple words, in black and white. Because you have not got the priority right. You've put your own house before my house. That's why I withdrew the blessings. And Haggai's now spelt it out. You can't miss it. And so sandwiched in the middle there, between the economic situation described, the blessings withdrawn, notice sandwiched in the middle comes verse 8. The command issued, go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured. And was that the root of the problem, do you think? Was that they hadn't properly understood 
that the building of the house was the way that God would take pleasure and be honoured. Was that what led to the upside-down priorities, the topsy-turvy of how they were living? Was it that they hadn't properly understood that their chief end was to honour God, for him to be the one who is pleased? So Haggai now commands, the Lord through Haggai commands them, go, get the stuff you need, and build. So that, be motivated by my pleasure and honour. The chief end of man on this earth is to honour and glorify God. That is our chief end. It is why we exist, is to bring God pleasure and to honour him. And do you think that ought to be our motivation now too? Well, what was the first prayer request that Jesus told his disciples to pray in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 or Luke 11? Our Father in heaven, I could never get this as a kid. I went to the kind of junior school, and it, I don't know whether they do it nowadays, but in, the, in junior schools kind of, you know, 50 years ago, in junior schools, we learnt the Lord's Prayer. I didn't come from a Christian home at all. I'd never have learnt the Lord's Prayer at home, but we did learn the Lord's Prayer at school, and I could never get it. See, I could never work out why God wanted to have the same name as my dad. Our Father, who art in heaven... Now, my dad was called Harold. Our Father, who art in heaven, Harold be thy name. I'd never, never get why. Why would God want the name Harold? It's, I thought the name Harold was an odd name myself. Our Father, who art in heaven, Harold be thy name. But it's not that, is it? It's hallowed be thy name. May your name be treated as holy, or your name be treated with honour. Our chief concern ought to be the honour of God that he take pleasure. And I want to suggest to you this morning that that is the motive that will rule our Christian lives or ought to be what motivates us to do what we'll see in a moment we are called to do. And if anything else motivates you in your Christian life, guilt, being told by the pastor, sorry, guilt, being told by the pastor, the autism, I ought to do it. It'll never drive you as well as, I want God to be honoured. I want him to be pleased. I want him to take pleasure. It's the best motivating thing, the, most, the thing that will consistently keep us on track. And so we need to ask, well, are we about a building project? Are we about building a temple? Do we need to all get on the plane on Monday and fly to Jerusalem and start building a new temple in Jerusalem Monday morning? You wouldn't be allowed to, but, if, but imagine, you, is that what we're about? The answer is no. But are we about a building project? Most certainly we are. Are we about building a temple? Most certainly we are. Not a physical one, of course, because you and I know that at the death of Jesus, what happens to the curtain in the temple? 
It's torn in two from top to bottom. It's the beginnings of the physical destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. You may remember that Jesus in John chapter 2 goes into the temple and says, I'm going to destroy this temple and build a new one three days later. And they're all scratching their heads and thinking, it took us 46 years to build this temple. How's he going to destroy and build in three days? And John adds a little editorial comment at the end of John chapter 2 and says, they did not realise he was speaking about his death and resurrection. At Jesus' death and resurrection, a physical temple in Jerusalem is no longer needed because Jesus is the presence of God and Jesus is the one sufficient sacrifice. So there's no need for a temple. You don't need a physical temple to sacrifice anymore and you don't need a physical temple to demonstrate the presence of God because Jesus tabernacled amongst us and when Jesus ascends, he sends his spirit into our hearts and amongst us to be the presence of God. So there is no need for a physical temple anymore. I wish people in the denomination I go to understood that. No physical temples anymore. I remember years ago when Jonathan, who's our eldest, he must have been about three or four, and we took him round Chester Cathedral. And at the front of Chester Cathedral, there's a roped-off bit. There's a big table and a roped-off bit. And on the table were two big candles. So I said to Jono, I said, why don't you go under, under the rope and blow the candles out? So he went under the, under the rope and blew the first one out. <sighs> And as he was walking to the second candle, this man in a big black dress marched towards us and said, what is that child doing? I said, he's blowing out the candles. Because that's what candles are for now, isn't it? I I said to him, you don't need the candles to light the place. We've got electricity. So the candles can't be for illumination. He said, do you see that red light above the table? I said, yes. He said, that is the presence of Jesus in the bread and wine that's been left there from communion. It's extraordinary. I said, well, you can't have it both ways, mate. I said, if it's not the presence of Jesus, then my son ought to be allowed to blow the candles out. And if it is the presence of Jesus, you ought to allow him to come, because Jesus said, let the little children come to me. You can't have it both ways. It's either Jesus or it's not. And in both cases, there's no reason to rope the, t- the, t- the table off. I said, Jonathan, go and blow the other candle out. This guy, he was, he, I've never seen a man go redder than this man in the black. The black against his red it, it almost looked satanic. It was just kind of, kind of he was just... I thought was going to burst and we had blood all over them. It was extraordinary. He was very misguided. There are no special buildings anymore. God is not present in a building. He's not present at the front of a building. Ridiculous. At the death of Jesus, physical temples have gone. Now you know that, don't you? So next time you're in Chester, candle blowing... I dare you. I challenge you. And you, can, you can say that. Yeah, go on. Andrew, you can say that. I'm, I'm in enough trouble with the Church of England already, so that's probably fine. But we're not about physical buildings anymore. But are we about building a temple? We very most definitely are. Do you remember in 1 Peter 2, the writer Peter says, as you come to Jesus... We become what? 
living stones. It's a strange kind of... Um, you don't expect a stone to be living, but we become living stones being built into what? Being built into the temple, into the house, where God will dwell for all eternity. Paul puts it similarly in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, telling us that the apostles and prophets are the foundation, with the Lord Jesus being the chief cornerstone, and we rise to be the house where God will dwell for all eternity. Is that a remarkable thing? So are we concerned about a building project? We most certainly are. As we see the gospel go out, as we see people become Christians, they become part of the building that God is on about now. God is about a building project, and the remarkable thing is he has allowed you and I to be involved in the building. As we see the gospel go out, and as we see God's people grow in maturity. And that is what God now is honoured by. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. What do we want to see happen? We want God's kingdom to grow. And I think kingdom, temple, they're just different metaphors of the same reality, aren't they? We're about building the thing that God's concerned for. And can you think of any better priority to be involved in that? And it'd be worth asking, what, what do we allow to usurp that? We're concerned for God to be honoured. How is God best honoured? By people hearing the gospel and turning to Jesus. So at one level, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? Let's be passionate. Let's be concerned above, for that above everything else. Build. So that I may take pleasure and be honoured, says the Lord. God-centred priorities. But then second, God-empowered obedience. That's verses 12 through to 15. And the good news is the people obey. It's a sandwich again, and I wonder whether you noticed the surprise as Daryl read it for us. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai. Why? Because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Hooray! The people obey. But I would then have written immediately after verse 12, the middle of verse 14. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord their God on the 24th day of the sixth month. So 23 days, three, three and a bit weeks after Haggai has spoken, the people are now back at work. They've got their hard hats on, the plans are laid out, workers are on site. The house of God is being built. Hooray! The people obey God and they are at work. But I wonder whether you noticed what was sandwiched in the middle. The Lord's enabling. Notice how verse 13 and the first half of verse 14 is sandwiched in between telling us what the people do. And between what the people do is what God does. 
Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. The Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. Notice God is at work as the people are at work. It's a common Bible idea. The evidence of God at work in us is us at work for God. And when we are at work for the Lord, he is at work in us. Notice it's in two ways. Notice his presence and then his power. His presence, verse 13. I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you. If you were to come to our house at the moment and into our living room, you'd notice that it's being redecorated. And in our spare moments, that's what we're giving our uh, time to, just doing some redecorating. Well, imagine Duffin said... No panelled housing, just redecorating. Imagine Duffin says, I'll come and be with you while you're redecorating. Well, if you just came and sat like a lump of lard in the middle of the room doing nothing, that would be no help at all. But that's not the sense I'm with you means in verse 13. I am with you. It means I'm alongside you. I am your enabler. And notice the little connecting word between verse 13 and 14. So the Lord stirred up. I am with you and the Lord stirring up the people, I think, are synonyms. And I think that's the case because isn't it interesting when Jesus encourages, exhorts, commands us to go about temple building, what's the great promise he makes? Do you remember the Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel? I've been given all authority in heaven and earth. There's not much authority left if you've got all authority. I've got all, been given all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, because Jesus is Lord everywhere, therefore you go everywhere. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And what? What's the promise? And I am with you unto the end of the age. That great promise of the presence of Jesus is in the context of temple building, going and making disciples of all nations. And wonderful, Jesus says, I'll be with you in it. Not just to watch you do it, but I am with you. And I think the parallel in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, do you remember Jesus says to the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do you think the promise of the empowering of the Spirit and the presence of Jesus are two different realities or do you think they're two different ways of saying the same thing? That's my view. My own view is from Haggai chapter 1, that little connecting work, word, so, I am with you, equals I stirred up your spirit. Seems to me the power of the spirit at work in us is the same as the presence of Jesus in us. And that presence is the enabling to do the work which otherwise, humanly, you and I would find impossible. I've not yet found anyone who finds talking about Jesus, speaking the gospel to people, easy. Do you find it hard? 
Do you clam up when an opportunity comes? We need the presence of Jesus, don't we? We need the power of the Spirit. I remember when I worked in London, I went to, it was a Wednesday afternoon, I went to the hairdresser. And you know how when you're having your hair cut, the hairdresser engages you in conversation. They are one better than dentists. Joe and I went to the dentist uh, yesterday, and uh, the dentist had his hands in my mouth, and he tries to engage you in conversation when you have no hope of replying. Why do dentists do that? I don't know. But anyway, this girl was cu cutting away at my hair, and she said, are you not working today? I said, well, it was an opportunity, wasn't it, to tell her what I did. But I just said, no, I work flexi time. Sort of true. She said, where do you work? What an opportunity. I said, I work in just a little road off the A10. It was true. She said, what do you do? Third opportunity. What do you do? I said, um, I teach people. She said, who do you teach? Fourth opportunity. She said, oh, I teach mostly students and young professionals. Fifth question, what do you teach them? It's at this point I realise that this is an opportunity. And I pray an SUS prayer, you know, send up a Swifty. And I pray and ask for the Lord to help me. And so then I blurted it out. I said, the Church of England pays people like me to explain to people like you why you should become a Christian. She said, are you any good at it? I said, why don't I explain the gospel to you and you can work out for yourself? Now, why was I so pathetic? Because of myself, it's not what I naturally want to do. But the wonderful news here is that God has promised his presence and his power to enable us to do the task. God has not called us on us to do something impossible. No. He has called on us to do something that is impossible, that's very difficult for us, but he has resourced us to be able to do it. Is that not his kindness and his generosity? God-centred priorities. The priority of motivated by honouring God that issues itself in temple building, which for us now, is making Jesus known and being built up in the truth. God-centred priorities. And the good news is, God-empowered obedience. God has empowered us to obey him by his presence and by his power.